Clearshore presents Technology, Innovation, and Modern War, Class 18, General James Mattis, by Steve Blank, December 21, 2020, at steveblank.com. We just held our 18th and final session of our new national security class, Technology, Innovation, and Modern War. Joe Felter, Raj Shah, and I designed a class to examine the new military systems, operational concepts, and doctrines that will emerge from 21st century technology, namely space, cyber, AI and machine learning, and autonomy. Today, General James Mattis, former Secretary of Defense, addressed the class, who gave an inspiring talk about service to the nation. General Mattis joined the Marine Corps back in 1969 and he has led Marines and then later Joint Forces from every level from platoon commander as a lieutenant all the way up to combatant commander of the U.S. Central Command as a four-star general. He recently led our entire U.S. Defense Department as our nation's 26th Secretary of Defense. We're fortunate to have him back here at Stanford at the Hoover Institution. I've selected excerpts from a riveting Q&A session with the teaching team and our students. General Mattis shared a range of compelling experiences and insights that underscored many of the themes of the course. How do we as a nation compete against China? The reality is that Republican and Democratic administrations have tried for 20-some years to help China. It was assumed if we enable them, if we work with them, if they liberalize their economy, political liberalization will follow. It was an untested thesis, and there were a lot of people, if they'd read history, that might have said, I'm not so sure about that. Because as many of you are aware, the Chinese Communist Party sits on a shaky throne. They cannot liberalize politically, or they will lose power. It's that simple. They're not going to liberalize. They've made the choice. It's loud and clear. It goes on over decades. From Brussels to Washington, D.C., certainly from Tokyo to Canberra to New Delhi, there's an appreciation that China wants to rewrite the rules, and there's no reason to think an authoritarian country at home would somehow write liberal rules abroad. That's what history teaches you. Countries don't treat foreigners better than their own people. So you have to recognize the CCP is becoming more authoritarian, for example, over Hong Kong, over their Uyghurs, over their own people with social grades now being assigned social responsibility, job, grades, and that sort of thing. When the National Defense Strategy came out stating that China is our number one competitor, it was done with the idea that if we can buy the peace, keep the peace, one more year, one more month, one more week, one more day, this gives our diplomats the time to work and try keeping our values foremost to show the world we mean to make this work. We are not out to keep China down. What do you think is the opportunity for Silicon Valley and the students in our class here at Stanford to play a role in national security? Well, the first point I would make is, we need every one of your good ideas. This is not a government that runs in Washington and does its own thing like Beijing does, or Moscow does in their country. This is a government of the people, by the people, for the people. We have no ordained right to victory on the battlefield. If we want to keep these freedoms we have, the freedoms that bring so many people from around the world to Silicon Valley, 
those freedoms are going to have to be defended because there's always people who think the way to run things is to beat heads, not to count heads. For those countries that don't operate off that, you cannot wish them away. You cannot make them into something you want them to be because you think the people there are like you. They are like you. A taxi driver in Leningrad, for example, is much like a taxi driver in San Francisco. The problem is not with the people in those countries. It's with a system. So we're going to have to deal with that system and make sure that we draw the very best of our young people. And you don't have to stay for 40-some years like me, but you should come in and do it for a few years. Maybe what you want to do is really emphasize education in your local community and be on the local school board when you're 26 years old. Do your homework and go for it. Maybe you want to be in the city council and help adjust housing policies so that normal people with normal paychecks can actually afford to buy a house in this town. We need others of you to move into these very technical issues and help us find our way forward. But the bottom line is you really need to consider that this freedom, just because the draft went away, it doesn't mean you get to live here scot-free. Some people say a country's like a bank. You can only take out of it what you're willing to put in. We got a lot of people nowadays who think that they can take out, but they don't have to put anything in. Number one, that's a good way to end up on a psychiatrist's couch when you're about 45, saying that in my selfish life, I didn't do a whole lot of good to other human beings. So I don't recommend that. But number two, it's just a heck of a lot of fun to roll up your sleeves and work alongside others in a great cause. You'll never regret it. You'll have the best days of your life. You'll have the worst days of your life there. But by golly, we're really living when we're doing this. And for those of you who want to go into military, I recommend it. Are we correct to emphasize that it's less about the technology and more about how we use it? Well, we're fortunate. I think that we are at the leading edge, at the cutting edge, on technology. It's why so many young people who are bright come to Palo Alto and the area, or to Boston, or Seattle, Texas, all these places where we have this going on. I don't think it's either or, but if I was to concentrate on the area most important, it would be on the integration. I study a lot of history, not because it gives me all the answers, but it tells me how other people dealt successfully or unsuccessfully with similar situations. Not every situation is unique, and so it teaches you what questions to ask. And I'll give you an example of a military technology where some people didn't develop it, didn't develop the 2.0 version, but used it better than anyone else. World War I. The British are sick and tired of their boys going against barbed wire and machine guns. And they say, if we could cross that ground in an armored vehicle and then fight, or fight from the armored vehicle, we'd save a lot of lives. And so they developed the tank right in the middle of the war. They weren't thinking ahead. They got caught flat-footed. Tanks are big. They didn't work well and everything else. But they had the tank. British had the tank. They even had some pretty good tactics, to tell the truth, developed over the next few years after the war. Well, everyone else said, oh, I want one of those too. Mankind, being what they are, they're always looking for a different way to whack each other. And so everybody starts making tanks. Guess who had the best tank by 1939? People think the Germans. Ha <laughs> ha, not by a long shot. The French had better tanks. Tank for tank, 
French had the better tank by 1938-39. But the Germans integrated the tank better. So the British had tank 1.0. Let's just say the French had 2.0. And the Germans were about 1.5. But the Germans put a radio in their tank to talk to a dive bomber overhead. And they trained their people, educated them to use initiative. And now they unleash what you and I call lightning war, Blitzkrieg, across Europe in 1940. They didn't invent the tank. They didn't develop the tank very well. They didn't even have the most modern tank. But they integrated that technology better than anyone else did. And they unleashed hell across Europe. So that just shows the priority of integrating capabilities better, more effectively, more broadly, in a more focused way than someone else. That's where you get your advantage. What new technology threats do you see? The new threats that are coming, we can see them mostly in the cyber and the space domains. Those are two new domains. We fought on this planet for about 10,000 years on the land and sea, then in the last 100 years, the air. In the last 15 years, we've added cyber and space. I would tell you that in these areas, we are integrating them now, but there's also fundamental changes coming in the way we deal with one another as human beings. Talking about artificial intelligence here, how we deal with life, and all of these are double-edged swords. Every one of them, I can tell you, has a double edge. So we better figure out how we're going to deal with these emerging technologies, hypersonics, this sort of thing, and try to keep the peace for one more year, one more month, one more week. What do you think the future of warfare looks like? I got a phone call one day. I was a Marine Three Star in Afghanistan. The Secretary General of NATO called me. He said, I've been approved by your president to call you. You're going to be put in charge of the Supreme Allied Command for NATO transformation. And in the U.S., you're going to command U.S. Joint Forces Command. Your job is to feel out future warfare. And I thought, I better start reading about this because I've been an infantry guy fighting all this time. So I read 20-some books, and every military book started with Alexander the Great. There's a reason he's called the Great, by the way. Every military that successfully transformed, successfully modernized, did one thing in particular, the ones that succeeded. They defined the specific problem they were trying to solve. And what they did was they defined the problem so well that the solution became more apparent to them. Go to Einstein. If he had 60 minutes to save the world, he was asked how he would compose his thoughts. He said, I'd spend 55 minutes defining the problem. Then we'd save the world in five minutes. So how does that impact here? I would tell you that in this case, it's going to be a combination of the legacy systems and the breakthrough technologies that are coming right now. But remember this. I was thinking, as you were all briefing your strategies earlier, for 2022 and up to 2030. There's a boxer who said, everyone's got a plan until they get slugged in the face. I remember when we were explaining to some Russian officers after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and we were meeting and actually getting along with each other in those days. It went bad under Putin, but for a little while in this window, I remember one of our officers saying, you know, with our air forces, you weren't going to move across Europe. He said, oh, we weren't worried about that. I was kind of curious. I said, why not? He said, because you weren't going to be flying many of your air forces when my T-72s were parked on your runway. 
In other words, there's the give and take of war. Where you see an advantage that we held, and we did hold a great advantage in the air, and they didn't have the air defenses that would have been sufficient to stop us in most cases. But what they were going to do is use a past technology. They were going to deny us the use of ours. So what does that look like? Well, see, all these new weapons being fielded, some will work, some will not work as well. Some will be destabilizing, some will actually not be used at all. Just the threat will be sufficient. For example, right now, if you walk into a geographic combatant command, there's a whole bunch of men and women sitting there in the senior operations shop, and they're watching the intel on the board. And there's a guy sitting there talking to the aircraft carriers, another one talking to the Air Force fighter, the chaos, the fighter guys, bombers, that sort of thing. There's the Army missile people in the room. There's your maneuver brigades in the room, this sort of thing. Well, there's also sitting there some different-looking guys and gals, mostly civilians, and they're sitting there, and they're on keyboards, and they're going very quickly back and forth to some other places, and they are fighting it out in cyber warfare right then. The satellites are being turned to look at certain things, and it's going on. And so you're going to see the integration from the very top all the way down to an army battalion that's got an Air Force officer in it. That's bringing in certain targeting data through an integrated command and control system. In other words, it's not like it's all going to be fought by robot, but there'll be lots of robots in the field and in the air overhead. It's not all going to be high-tech. In fact, some of the units will be messaging to one another using motorcycle riders more than likely, because they can't be cut off by cyber. You're going to see this mix up and down the scale of technology, and certain braking technologies are going to then dominate in certain areas. And now it's up to you to mix and integrate that together in a way. That's what you do. Let me tell you what you want to do to the enemy commander. That guy who's going to make the decision to fall back, to fight harder, to do this, to do that. We want him facing so many cascading dilemmas that he cannot keep up with them. As he solves this one, three more dilemmas pop up. And you want him on the horns of a dilemma, constantly. If he moves, he's going to get hit. If he stays put, he's going to get hit. If he moves over here, he's going to get hit. But if he hits you, he's going to get hit even harder, because it's how hard you fire, and now we have more intel on where he's firing from. It's a great, great tragic chess game, and it will be characterized by all the things you're studying now and the surprises the enemy has up their sleeve. When I walked into the Pentagon my first day there, it's noon on a Saturday. And there is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, four-star Marine General I knew well, a four-star Air Force General I knew well as the vice chairman, and one holdover from the Obama administration required by law, who's the Deputy Secretary of Defense under President Obama. And that's the four of us. We're going to be, for six months, the people that make all the decisions there. I said, you know, guys, I've been asking for a strategy for a month in case the Senate asked me about it in my hearing. They didn't, but you didn't give it to me. I know I couldn't give you an order beforehand because the Senate would take umbrage. I didn't have their consent yet. But I said, I want the strategy, and I need it right now, because I'm going to be signing next-of-kin letters, moms and dads. And the chairman looked me right in the eye and said, We don't have one. We hadn't had one for ten years. This is not a partisan slam on the Obama administration. 
It's two different parties, two different administrations. So I went home that night and I started writing it. I carried it with me in every meeting in NATO so I can talk to our allies. My first trip was just Tokyo and Seoul. I took my starting writing with them. I talked to every Democrat and Republican on Capitol Hill that was willing to talk with me about it. A year later, we rolled it out. And for two years in a row, I was getting record-breaking budgets for the Department of Defense, with 87% of the House and Senate Democrats and Republicans voting for it. So the answer is, do you give up on your principles, your values, your way of life, your constitutional form of government? Create a strategy and say that this is what we stand for. This is what we will not stand for. Put everything in your budget into it. I recommend the new administration take out of the national security strategy at the White House anything about America first. I don't care how well it was intended. It did not work well. I didn't like it in the beginning. I like it less now. We didn't put any of that into the defense strategy. So it could probably pretty much stand. They may need to play with it a little bit and put their thumbprint on it. But when you get strategies that are built with bipartisan support, as Senator Vandenberg, a right-wing conservative Republican, was asked in Michigan 1949, how could you work with that terrible left-wing President Truman? He answered very bluntly, politics stops at the water's edge. Right now, we have so few people who've seen nonpartisan, bipartisan work, they don't even recognize that when it happens. But that's the solution. Real strategic thinking based on traditional strategies and traditional views of America's role in the world, with less militarism in its foreign policy. How can we students help advance national security and serving our country? You should, number one, keep learning. Make this your first step of graduate-level learning, and keep it going now. In the Marines, every time you get promoted, you get a new reading list you have to read. Even generals get a new reading list to read. You have to read all these books, but never stop learning because it's a very dynamic world. It's just a wash in change, and you have to keep learning. How do you bring it to bear in your question? And remember, we've got a couple of branches of the government that would probably appeal to you. The House and the Senate Armed Services Committees, Intelligence Committees, and Foreign Relations Committees love to get you bright young folks in there. Oftentimes, they don't stay but four or five years, which seems like a long time to you right now. It's not, trust me. But it gives you an understanding of how the government works and steeps you in the issues du jour. Another way to do it would be to go into State Department, the CIA, or the Department of Defense, or the Department of Navy, Air Force, Army. It's a little more technically oriented, for example, that might be worth it. If you go to the Secretary of Defense's office, and you just say, you've lived for a year in Jordan, or you lived for a year in China, we oftentimes try to bring people like you in to be the deputy desk officer. So you can actually bring your knowledge right in. We think if we can snag you young and show you what we're doing, we'll keep you. Years later, you'll come back. The point I would make is that even if you don't stay there for a career, whether it be the Peace Corps, the Marine Corps, whether it be the military or State Department, Try to find a way that you can go in and find that you get passionate about something. Because I would just tell you that once you get to that point, it never seems like a job. And you'll really dig into it 
because you have the initiative to go deeper because you like what you're doing. And now let me close with something. I'm a two-star general. I'm out in western Iraq. It's 2004. It's been 120 degrees, 127 degrees every day. At night, it cools down to 105. We're outnumbered. We've been fighting and fighting and fighting, and I pull in at midnight to a lieutenant, probably no more than 18 months out of his undergraduate days in college, and his sailors and marines. And when the sun comes up, I'm inside his perimeter out in the middle of nowhere in the desert, and he comes over and he's telling me, okay, here's where I've been fighting, General, and here's where I've lost men. Here's how many enemy we've taken out. And by the way, General, we picked up a guy last night. He was putting an IED on the road you drove in on. I said, really? That's kind of personal. He said, well, guess what? He lived two years in London. He speaks perfect English. You want to talk to him? I said, sure. Because it turns out he's an engineer. He's been trained in England. And so he sits down. A Marine cuts off his little plastic handcuffs, the guard who's been walking around with him. And obviously, it wasn't a good night for the man. He's out there digging his hole. He's got his artillery round. He's going to put his car battery in. He's whistling. He looks up, and there's five guys with automatic rifles pointing at him in camouflage uniforms. It is well. I think my retirement program is not in good shape right now. And I said, what are you doing this for? You're a Sunni. I can tell that. We're the Marines. We're the only friend you've gotten in this country. Why are you trying to kill us? And he starts off, well, you're American. You're here to steal the oil and all this. And I said, no, actually we're not. I said, I pull my wallet out every time I pump gas in my doggone car. But you're an educated man. You get to talk like that. Just go away. I don't want to waste my time. And the Marine stepped forward to take him away. And I said, can I sit here for a minute? He said, okay. We're sitting in the dirt right there by my vehicle. And he said, I just don't like foreign forces, foreign soldiers in my country. Okay, I respect that. I wouldn't want them in my country. I understand that. We started talking a little bit and getting a cup of coffee, and he spilled it all over his hand, so he's nervous. And I asked him about his family. He's got a wife and two daughters. They live over on the river about 10 kilometers away. And these Marines are on Ratline out in the middle of nowhere, where if they don't stop the Syrian foreign fighters coming in, they're going to kill a lot of innocent people. So the Marines are getting antsy to get back on the road, get back on patrol and everything. So at the time, I got to get going. And he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, I guess I'm going to jail. You sure are. You're going to be in Abu Ghraib wearing an orange jumpsuit for a good long time for this little stunt. You're doggone lucky you're not dead. And he said, do you think, General... You think if I'm a model prisoner, do you think my family and I could immigrate to America? Think about that, my fine young friends. On your worst day, I want you to remember that story. Think about that. That he would give anything right now to be sitting where I am sitting, and his daughter sitting where you're sitting right now. As imperfect as we are, as angry as we are at each other in this country right now, it seems angrier than I was even at terrorists when I'm shooting them. Think of how great this country is on its worst day, and then roll your sleeves up and make it better. It's that simple. Make it stronger. Keep faith with each other. Help each other. And remember three words. Put others first. And you won't be going to some shrink when you're 45 years old wondering what you did with your life. Have a good night, young folks. 
and thanks for having me here. Lessons learned. What a fitting end to the class. Class summary and lessons learned in our next and final post. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. We would like to hear from you, so please send your thoughts to comments at clearshore.us or visit us at clearshore.us. If you would like this show delivered to you automatically, you can subscribe to the Clearshore Podcasts on iTunes. Wishing you all the best until next time.